Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses World with the World War II gave us writing for Godot and Oklahoma. Without the arts, we are diminished. We had the kind of creative freedom. I was, I was on television as a child, and then I had I was in Cotty's happy hour. She leaned across to me and she said, one day, you know, you'll be doing that. Mind-boggling. They were even lined with purple leather. Uh, went to the ABC and audition. I was so fit at the end of that, you could have ended me in the Melbourne Cup. I, and I still firmly believe that great work can be made in small places. If nobody's going to respect your talent, you've got to respect it. I hope I've been entertaining, that's all. Well, that's very kind of you, Peter. But you are a friend. <laughs> yeah, it's a date. <laughs> it's a date. Hello. I'm Peter Eyes, and welcome to this episode of the Stages podcast. Today, my guest is Annie Finsterer. Annie plays many roles, teacher, voiceover artist, director, keynote speaker, but she is chiefly recognised as an actor. She's also the author of a new book titled Radical Rock and Roll Resilience. Many experiences have contributed to the content of the book, and Annie generously shares those in this conversation. Annie was a passenger in a severe car accident at the age of 17. It might have ended her dream of an acting career, but her determination to pursue a career on the stage proved a powerful means to recovering. A second and more devastating car accident followed some years later, and she has since endured more than 23 operations, including skin grafts and facial reconstruction. But Annie has defied the odds to work steadily as an actor over several decades, on stage and screens. And she was awarded an AFI for her role in the tally movie Three Acts of Murder. It is an extraordinary story, and I was humbled that Annie was keen to share her story with stages and expand on the content of her book, Radical Rock and Roll Resilience. Great. Great. What? Some people get excited when they start doing this. No, I won't. I promise. (laughs) It's not the ABC studios, unfortunately. No. No. Annie Finsterer, uh, welcome to the Stages podcast. Thank you very much. Being uh, centre stage on stages. Thank you. Lovely to see you. Yeah, you too. I haven't seen you for a while. I think the last time was um, Education Connected. That's right. Both teaching drama. and That's um, right. I had my students along to see The Shape of Things at uh, McDonnell College, I do believe. That's right. That was a production that we were doing as part of the HSC drama syllabus. So. That's right. What a great play. Isn't it a great play? Yeah. Black comedy. Black love it. Black comedy. Mm. Do you have a favourite genre of theatre that you like to perform? I do love black comedy. It is great. But I do love Inishmore, the, the, the cripple of Inishmore, in, in, that, um, in that genre, that play. Um, look, I love drama, but I also love drama with comedy. So that's probably... Um, it's like straight drama I find quite difficult, but I've always loved um, drama that sends itself up a little bit. Yeah. So that it's a bit of a ride for the audience. I guess black comedy also has healing properties, doesn't it? It's um, a way of offering a catharsis mm. to people who have been through some sort of mm. trauma. Yes. I mean, um, the play that you just <laughs> identified, the Irish play. Um, yeah, Inishmore. Inishmore. The Cripple of Inishmore. Yeah, it was a way of Martin McDonagh's way of dealing with the, the IRA and the, the, the troubles in Ireland and, mm. and all that sort of thing. And it is so incredibly brutal, that play, but it is so gobsmackingly funny. Yeah. And, yeah, you're right, he, he really does deal with his own trauma through this intense comedic action on stage. Yeah. And it's it's gory and bloody and... I mean, he really takes it to the next level, but he's obviously, yeah, as you say, working his own stuff out through, through drama, and in that way, it but serves a good function, doesn't it? By by give, being given permission to laugh at some of those events, I, I think it's it helps us to deal with it, doesn't it? It's, mm. it's a release. Yes, know? it's a release. It's a catharsis and design. So I think um, the shape of things is not such a straight black comedy in that way, because I think it's it. It's it's not laugh out loud funny, but the catharsis is more in the identification with the characters, the survivors of the abuse, the survivors of the psychological abuse. Yeah. That that's what I find with that play. It's not so much um, a, a cathartic in the way Inishmore is, but well, it's but, a play that really gets its audience to question their own ethics and morals, mm. whether they align with the the acts of um, Evelyn in the play. That's and, right. And what she's done to Adam. Yeah, that's right. So it is psychologically quite abusive, but we, I think we identify with Adam and question, with, yeah, as you said, whether or not at some point we have been 
Evelyn um, or indeed Adam. So yeah, it's it's I, lo- I love um, I love dissecting thematic concerns. It's mm-hmm. one of my <laughs> favourite pastimes. Well, 2020 is a year that's sort of had quite a lot of thematic concerns, hasn't it? It, <laughs> yes. was, uh, it was a year that was uh, really the pits for all sorts of reasons. Mm. Um, how did you fare? I, I turned it f- towards a, a project that I'd long been wanting to do, which is writing. Um, I've always wanted to write a book, so I, I did write a book. And I used, I started before COVID, but when COVID hit, I was well into it. And then I strapped myself in and decided I'd finish so I worked very hard through COVID. And well, I think it, it, it was a year that caused a lot of creatives to well, enforce pause and so that they can then deal with those projects that they'd promised themselves for years that they would get around to writing the book or writing the play or, mm. or whatever they need to. And a lot of people that I've talked to too really use the time to work on themselves. And I found that a very interesting thing as I... Um, when I was writing my book and talking to people about resilience, and of course COVID was a major theme in in, in the book that I was writing, uh, most people said that because we can't control the external circumstances, what you can control is what's happening internally, which of course was what I was writing about. And to that end, COVID proved a perfect chance to to go within and to work on you know work on some issues or work on some blocks and work on some acting stuff and just uh yeah to really sort of mine that inner world Mm. because the external world was so crazy and that I think is a really beautiful gift although there's been massive trauma for people in COVID but some small gifts you know and don't forget we started that year with bushfires oh yeah yeah mental black lives matter yeah, um, a whole range of yeah. of events which really enforced the, the the superpower of resilience to come to the fore in yeah. a way of dealing with all of that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. and I don't, I think we we didn't know what we we're really made of until we had these external factors totally out of our control. Because I think we live our lives like we really are in control. And I mean, actors, I think one percentage of the population who know we're not because of the way we live our lives. But for the most part, people go along thinking they've got a modicum of control in their lives. And COVID was a big teacher in that way, as is nature, as is nature, that we we really aren't. And we can only then look to ourselves to change our response to the external factors rather than to to blame and, and anger and, you know, to project all these negative and hyper emotions, uh, reactive emotions, I would say. But the challenge, of course, is to choose to respond to it, you know, and respond in a way that can help you grow as a human being and not sort of be diminished by the challenge. How do you define resilience, Annie? For me, resilience is really about um, uncovering the blocks to your own joy because I believe that we all have resilience. I, I think... You know, I read I read an article recently that said you, you, some people aren't resilient at all and some are, and I, I don't agree with that line of thinking. I believe we all have it, and it's and it, we're born with it. It's a resilient energy that we all have. But when we're, when we're not feeling resilient, when we're feeling beaten and we can't get back up again, what what we've done is, is blocked the pathway to our own sense of inner power and joy. And resilience is really about uncovering and unblocking those pathways do you think it's to do with that innate sense of flight or fight connected with 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 either you flee as a way of dealing with the situation or stay and confront it yeah i mean that that stress response is a really big part of how you how resilient you are um and um, a big part of resilience is understanding that the, the, those those different those three stress responses, the flight, fight, freeze, as um, as a an anxious response, because resilience is all about choosing to respond in a conscious way. And the first part of resilience is awareness. Uh, I say, you know, self awareness is your greatest superpower, and you can't really you you, you once you understand what your particular stress response is, then you can choose to actually work with it and respond in a way that serves you. Because those stress responses, as you know, we, we all know, they're primitive, they're primitive responses. 
and they're a part of our old human brain that we used when we were really sort of hunting, gathering and fighting off predators. But we, we have the same response. It's just a physiological fact. But it's not always appropriate in our modern world. So if we know that, then we can better work with those stress responses because they're fear responses and fear's never going to help us get to where we need to go to, yeah. It's going to hold us back. Oh, fear will always hold us back, yeah, yeah. The book is called uh, Radical Rock and Roll Resilience. Yeah. Great title. (laughs) Thanks. So how did you come up with that title? Well... Are you a rock and roll chick? Yeah, well, I sing and I have yeah. sung rock and roll before, but it's it's so uh, the I called it well. It's radical because the self help I gave myself was quite radical. I didn't know what I was doing when I needed so much self help, and I and I needed a lot of help when I was a young girl, and then more recently as a mature woman when I split from a twenty three year relationship. So those experiences bookend my my need, absolute need, no doubt about it, for resilience. So the book is, is about resilience, but it's also about lack of resilience. I had to work my way through uh, finding a way to get back up again. The radical is that I really did do a massive self-help dive on myself to get through particularly the relationship bust-up. And the rock and roll is when I was 16, I was really smashed very badly in a car accident. And one of the things I used to do in my lounge room was rock out to the videos that were, you know, the music videos that had become um, MTV and all this sort of stuff that was starting to come through. And I would literally pretend to be, you know, Mick Jagger or Blondie or um, Chrissy Hind or one of these, any anyone who was on those videos, I'd dance and I'd, I was busted very badly, but I would always rock out to these rock stars. And it was when I was doing neuro-linguistic programming about 10 years ago that I realised that I was actually helping myself by changing my external state. Uh, It's one of the um, tenets of neuro-linguistic programming. You change your physical state and it therefore impacts your internal state. And then that starts to show up in your intrapersonal dialogue to yourself and how you then communicate that state to the world so I was helping myself by rocking out to these rock stars and I didn't realize it until 30 years later I was how I realized how I had upgraded my state my inner state and then I everything fell into place and I understood it so that's the rock and roll that's the rock and roll reference as well as a couple of other little things and um yeah the resilience is um, that word I think has a bit of a bad rap but it's a beautiful word because I think we're all resilient and I think we can all help each other be resilient so it's about it's survival actually, isn't it it's about survival but yeah. it's also about it's about finding your joy yeah it's about finding your joy through the tough times yeah, yeah. Well, you have uh, survived your own personal tragedies, which I'd like to talk about a little bit later in the conversation. But let's start with where did you grow up? Are you a Sydney girl? Uh, Canberra. Canberra, yeah. right. So Canberra. within this area? Um, so I, I left Canberra when I was uh, 19. And I, I, I left because I wanted to go to drama school and I went to this part-time uh, film and television school that was run by a woman called Amber May Cecil. And I did a whole lot of part-time jobs and then I applied for a Bachelor of Performing Arts at Nepean, which is now University of Western Sydney, and that was 1984. And that's when I started my training as an actor. Had you always wanted to be an actor through childhood? Well, it was because I'd spent so much time in hospital, I, I was tossing up between nursing and acting. And I was very much encouraged by my mum to pursue acting. She just said, I think you will really regret it if you don't do it. So, yes, I I did want to do it. And I think the fact that I'd bashed my face in so fearlessly, perhaps that was one way of me trying to back out. But at the end of the day, I didn't back out and I just pursued it because I just knew I'd love it and I've always loved it. What sort of kid were you? Were you introvert, sporty? No, I was pretty Exhibitionist? Sport. <laughs> I mean, I was definitely not an introvert um, and... And I wasn't the most wild extrovert either, but I, I was an extrovert and I'm very social and I love connecting with people, but I've, I'm a very sporty person um, and I've always 
I've always swum. I was a competitive swimmer and I was a competitive dancer and I'm an Irish dancer. So I've always done a lot of sport. I was a um, competitive basketball player. So sport was a massive part of my life. But I realised when I was um, swimming, which was the, obviously the less social sport, and, and I, you know, I was swimming at a very high level and I gave that up because it was I needed to be more social. So <laughs> I've always pursued the connection of people through whatever I do. Right. It's my love of just, you know, that's why I love theatre so much, the ensemble, the family, same with sport. So it's no surprise really that I found my way to the theatre. And the, and with the sport in a team or a cast, those close bonds that you form for a lifetime. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's a, it's like a special bond that theatre people have with each other. That if you've done a play with somebody, you you know each other. You don't know so much of the external factors about someone, um, but you know what what you know so much of their emotional landscape, and so therefore you know people very very well, even though you might not know their their details of their life you somehow know what how they look internally and that's something that I think is very special. It's such a unique shared experience, isn't it? A journey that you all, I hate that word journey, but, but it is a, a journey that you all go on together yeah. just making discoveries about yeah. the text, the world of the play. That's right. And the choices that people make in the character too it tells you a lot about the kind of person that that is that it tells you a lot about the actor themselves, the choices that they make. And so you start to begin to see what makes them tick emotionally or why they made that choice and it's such a rich inner fascinating world to me um and it is totally as you said totally unique and fascinating yeah. mm. now your brother jack is also an actor yeah he was is. it an artistic household growing up very much so so my older brother is a um a guitar player he's a oh they, they call him he's a master guitar plays beautiful plays beautiful guitar uh, he lives in Melbourne and teaches a lot. Uh, he's also a composer and went to the Conservatorium of Music. And my older sister, she um, she has worked in drug and alcohol, but is um, she was a visual artist and made a lot of um, made a lot of uh, stuff with uh, decoupage. She was vis- very visual. And my other sister is a composer of some note. I suppose you would say she's internationally renowned composer well what about your folks are they did they sing were they musicians yeah my mum used to sing but my, my folks are pretty working class my mum was a nurse and my dad a builder so every and we're from Canberra so we are right. a little bit out of the box and nobody really knows where all of this intense um, creativity came from other than we had a lot of it was a big house as a volatile house a lot of big personalities and everybody wanted to express something so there it is but no they were not Certainly not pursuing any kind of creativity themselves. You've been a drama teacher also. Mm. Um, what was drama like in your education at school? Did, I don't really... It wasn't really a really subject, any. probably. It was that Friday afternoon with the, the PE teacher who... <laughs> the PE teacher. They, they could keep it kids quiet by playing some drama games, I guess. That, that was certainly my experience. Was it? Yeah. I, I don't remember having any drama classes. All I know is that I, had a, uh, I did a play at the end of Year 12... And I've got the photos because I was my I'd had my accident by then, and we just punced around as witches, and that was my experience of drama in high school. So no productions or school plays. Oh, I think there I did one. Uh, I played Lazarus in a play, but no, it was very minimal. My contact with drama at school was the family going to the theatre at all? No, live? I mean I think I saw Fiddler on the Roof or something, right. but it wasn't a thing wow. at all. No. But it was lying there waiting to come out. <laughs> I had a friend I went to school with. She was a couple of years ahead of me at school. She was in my sister's year. And she she knew I was interested in theatre. And she said to me, do you want to come along to this... Do you want to come along and talk to these people about a play they're doing by a man called Brecht, Bertolt Brecht? And I was like, oh, what's it called? She said, man versus man. Anyway, I went along and talked to these people, these guys. And they were probably the leading company at the time. Wish I could remember the guy's name now because his son is very involved in in theatre in Melbourne. Um, it might come to me. And so I had a conversation with him, and I ended up doing that play. And we and my my mother was really shocked because the the man, the lead actor, was nude on stage. I was one of the maids. Um, and there I was. My first play was a Brecht play. I didn't know what I was doing. I had no idea. I just stumbled into it. But I loved it. Yeah. I loved it so much. 
I loved the, re- the notes they gave after the rehearsal and I just thought the whole thing was fantastic. So I fell in love with it from there. A spotlight. <laughs> yes. The of audience. sorts in a very old hall around the back of Canberra somewhere. The best, ba- best ways to learn, I think. Oh, yeah. In those, yeah. those spaces. Um, you look at some of the drama schools now and the facilities that they have and, you know, the training... Um, students to to work in you know these five star hotels, whereas the reality is they're yeah. going to be working in those church halls and yeah. and little bed sits of theatre. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. So we've um, intimated uh, your hospital time, your accident, and all that sort of thing. Can we talk about that day? What what happened with with the car accident? Yeah, um, that was the first one. So I had two, and the the second one was much worse than the first one. Unfortunately, it was the second one was fatal. Um, but the first one, I, my sister came home from work one night and she was working at the hospital and she asked me, did I want to go into town to see a couple of boys were waiting at this nightclub. Their names were Ken and Chook. She liked Ken. I, really, I was into Chook. Of course I was. Irresistible name, right? It's a great nickname, Chook. So off we went. We were in her little Datsun 180B and it was rainy and dark and we were laughing and chatting and we were singing and having the best time and a dog ran out onto the road and hit my side of the car, passenger side, and the, sent the car spinning and fishtailing and it slammed into a tree. And I wasn't wearing the seatbelt. Mm. And I smashed my every bone in my face. I smashed my cheekbones and my nose and I cracked my skull open, lost all my brain fluid. Um, I had, I, I've had so many operations on my face, I don't, I can't count, I've lost count, but overall I've had 30 operations because the second accident was very severe. But in the first accident, I was fortunate that it was just my face. Um, but it was a, a lot. I had one of those steel frames drilled into my bones, so I couldn't eat or talk for three months. Um, I could only have pureed milkshakes or, uh, sorry, milkshakes or pureed roast chicken dinners through a straw, which of course I, I had to pass that one up. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there was a lot of recuperation and a lot of reconstructive surgery. Do you remember much about the time from the hit and that period when you're spinning? Mm. I mean, people say the light flashes before your eyes. Mm. Did time stand still or did it seem to go for ages? Or? Well, I was knocked unconscious for a long time because it was such a severe head injury. Right. Yeah, so I didn't wake up until... I do remember a paramedic talking to me and asking me the name of the Prime Minister and, you know, they do that sort of thing. Yeah. But I didn't, I didn't wake up until I was in emergency... And I saw my mother and my father was there, actually, which is a little unusual. And and I remember them looking over me and um, I was trying to tell them that it was cool and it was nothing and it was I was trying to downplay it. But I had this but massively you, bruised Yes, I was going to say, you wouldn't make any sense, would you? You wouldn't black yeah, and yeah. blue. And my mother said, it's definitely not cool, And But um, it well, kind of was cool, really, in a way, because... You know, here I am, and I kind of always knew that it was going to be okay. I wasn't. How, how can you tell it's going to be okay? There was a lot of damage there. It sounds. Did you worry that was your, your mobility affected? Did you worry could I walk again? Or well, I didn't. I didn't think about that. I just knew that my face was very badly damaged. But um, I mean, I certainly struggled as I was recuperating because I knew my friends, and I was only sixteen, and my friends were having such a wild time, and I had changed my face. Um, irreversibly and I knew that so I did have some struggles with future-based fears is what I'd call them now for good reason but in that moment I remember just thinking it's going to be fine it's going to be okay it's all going to pass one day and everything's everything's good you talk about a loss of brain fluid is, is that like blood and you're able to reproduce it it's once you... I think yeah it does reproduce itself yeah. but it's not really it's not like blood it's like goo it's like a substance right and that, they, that keeps the brain in place and yeah it protects yeah. it protects the brain mm. but the, it, the brain had been so dislodged that the, the fluid was just being emitted of its own volition and the scary bit about that was that had I got a cold or some sort of infection it would have gone straight to the brain I would have gotten brain damage and weirdly of course some people over the years have, have said that you know they think that I have um there was a girl in the bed opposite me who had exactly the same injury as me and she did get an infection into that brain canal and she did she got brain damage so I have always remembered her and always feel very fortunate to have not um just just to have escaped with what I 
with what I have. You know, I was so lucky to be able to have some good surgeons and even though the original surgery was pretty dreadful, I've had surgery since that has tried to fix what was done surgically and I've just been really lucky in that way to have been able to have surgery, the surgery that I've had, you know. And what about your sister? Oh, she, she was fit? okay. She, yeah, was she had a seatbelt on, so she was okay. Right. Yeah. Oh, there's a lesson to the listener, isn't it? Although well, you know, we become, at the time, though, it was a, probably a period where no, people were not wearing seatbelts. No, and it's only no education idea. that is enforced. No, none of my friends ever wore a seatbelt, and I no. never wore a seatbelt. It was just not, a, not the done thing. I mean, you have to now because you, they beep you to, to within an inch of your life. And was it, was it a bench seat or your bucket seats? Oh, uh, no, bucket seats. Right. Yeah, bucket seats. But, you know, nobody wore a seatbelt. That was just... You just sort of didn't. I mean, it wasn't a thing then, which seems very strange to me now, but that's how it was. Yeah. Yeah. How long were you in hospital? Oh, well, initially about, I think, three months, and then I was recuperating for a long time where I did do my high school certificate, and then I was in and out of hospital for a long time, years really, years and years, because I'd have to let it heal and settle, which takes some months, and then I'd tweak it again I have to have a eye socket operation they take the roof of my mouth and put it under my eye as a pillow um, are you able to be optimistic through all of that or do you have bouts of depression yeah. and well I was always uh, I wouldn't say like I'm not a, I never felt depressed but I felt I felt anxious about so that I was slightly sort of anxious about what I was what I'd done to my career what I was doing because what I'd done to my face, how is it going to impact my life. Um, but I have a fairly naturally buoyant spirit and I, as I said, felt very fortunate. I, In fact, I, I stumbled upon the concept of gratitude, where I talk about, which I talk about in my book, way before it was a bit of a buzzword. And once I stumbled upon that, what was working, um, because I was focusing on what wasn't working, and I realised that I did have the use of my legs and I had my eyes, I had my eyesight, I had my mother, I had my friends. I had a lot going for me, including Western medicine. And, and it was this feeling that I remember so clearly, feeling this instant upgrade. And from there I realised that by focusing on what was working was an actual strategy that I could keep with me always. And that, that was a massive... I, I, it was a very vivid memory and I've never, ever forgotten it. So... The concept of gratitude, of course, now in the research that I've done since then and also for my book, the HeartMath Institute tells us so much about what gratitude does. It rewires our brains. It's responsible for social bonding. It improves memory. It, it, um, it, it's responsible for a sense of well-being. There's a massive list of the benefits of, of experiencing gratitude, not cognitively so much, but from an emotional space. If you feel grateful for what's in your life and you really allow yourself to feel it the benefits are absolutely massive and I've always clung to that initial concept as a real strategy for me to really feel well and feel happy you know feel joyful in my life yeah Yeah. the mind's a very powerful thing isn't it incredibly powerful and you know I mean it's the most powerful tool our thoughts are the most powerful tool we have in terms of attracting what we want in our life because if you if you're not focused on what if you if you're focused on the negative all the time then that energetically sort of blocks what might ordinarily come your way so i think to keep to keep yourself open and present is just one of the main strategies i think for being resilient what about the the first time that did you have bandages on? Or, yeah. Right. Yeah. The first time the bandages come off and you look in the mirror. <laughs> yes. What was that like? Yeah, I mean, uh, I remember, you know, the swelling had gone down, but my face was uh, very asymmetrical and my eye was nat- had was low because of the surgery. So my face wasn't... I didn't recognise it as my face, basically speaking. that I didn't see it as, as being... It wasn't really Annie... But over the years, of course, the um, reconstructive surgery has given me back a face that is pretty similar to what I was born with. Um, you know, having said that, I've had four nose jobs and um, to try to give myself back a bone because I, I didn't have any bone. There was no bone to work with. It was so badly s- smashed. 
so there's been we eventually got a bone from the um, my skull. The, they slivered off a bit of my skull, and that they popped spare it. Parts. They popped it down there. Yes, there's lots of. I've got lots of <laughs> spare parts. But you know, um, the body is really amazing in the way that it sort of donates to another part of the body. I mean, yeah. you know, it's I've got, I've got all sorts of different bits and bobs from that have been borrowed from other parts yeah. of my body. And how did your siblings cope with seeing you in that <sighs> conditions? Um, well. No, I think it was tough for them actually, especially when I was so bruised in the hospital. But I only ask my sister when she was sixteen had um, a, a, an operation for a brain tumor, so of course they shaved the head and then they cut this big U shape into the into the skull. Yeah, right. And um, then metal staples just to sort of put it back together. God, that's crazy. Um, so I'd gone down to see her for the first time, and, and Mum met me in the corridor and just said, just warned me or whatever. And I said, oh yeah, whatever. Yeah. So I went straight in and. She looked so helpless and damaged, mm. and I just broke down. It was such mm. a, a thing to see, you know, a sibling in that state, um, and you had no control over what you could do for them. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think after that initial shock, you become blind to yeah. to the change that has happened physically. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I think it takes a bit of adapting, and I mean, I remember my brother didn't recognise me when he walked into the room and apologised, and and I had to say, "Oh no, it's me." thing I think he was a bit shocked that's my older brother but as you say people adapt and and then they're grateful to have you (laughs) You yeah probably with your sister you know you're like well I'm just lucky to have you so we live with all sorts of things and also one of the main things too is the living with imperfection that was a big thing for me to learn that yeah I mean this is an imperfect face now and I have to accept that took me a long time to accept that but I wanted to be an actor I couldn't I had to choose if it was going to stop me or not because obviously an actor wouldn't... It's not the nat- most natural course for, for an actor, to, a, a career for someone to choose having such an imperfect face. But, um, but is know. anybody perfect, though? Well, we, we live with all sorts of things. I yeah. mean, you, you're, people do have imperfections, and I don't, I don't think actors, you know, should have to be perfect. No. Actors are real people. So they're reflections of life. They're reflections of yeah. life. So yeah. in that way, philosophically, it should be... Yeah. It's a fine career path, although... But it Cast- doesn't sell tickets. Sometimes <laughs> casting people might see it differently. But anyway, well, did, was- did you have issues with the casting people? Well, nobody would talk about such a thing. Right. I mean, you might suspect, oh, I might not have got that role because I might have flaws here or there. But nobody would ever signal that to you. So you just carry on and do your best and hope, hope for the best. And I've had some great roles I'm terribly happy with, especially film and television, because, yeah. of course, it's not as important in theatre to have these imperfections but and you won an AFI award too, yeah. didn't you? yes I did yeah <laughs> I did yeah so yeah that was very special so it's not a big deal now because I really have I am very close to the face that I that I was born with so well, it's a gorgeous face oh, thank I can say you. so yes <laughs> Thanks, I wouldn't man. know that you'd been through that experience is that right oh yeah, well that's yeah. excellent yeah that's yeah. excellent to hear thank you well, not only that experience, another experience which we'll talk about shortly, but after that first accident in the hospital, is that when you decide to be an actor? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, I was thinking about it before the accident, but um, it was when I... Uh, I never really lost the idea, I suppose, and then uh, when I came out of hospital and I'd recuperated, I was working so as I could, um, you know, work for two years so I could get government help to go to uni. And it was during that time when I was working in retail that I thought, I'm going to pursue this acting gig. And, yeah, I just never really... I wasn't pursuing it so directly because I knew I had to work for two years to get the the financial assistance, but it never left me. So it sort of held on to me in a way. Yeah. I, I couldn't lose it if I tried. So where did you study? I went to Nepean. Ah, oh, fantastic. Which no longer exists, does it? No, not that, that course. drama course. Yeah. No, not Nepean. It was Nepean. a great course. A lot of great people have come out of that. Yeah. So I was in the year... Um, I started at 84 and graduated at 87. So I was in the same year as... Uh, I think the only one acting still actually is David Wenham. Right. Yeah. He and I, probably the only one still acting. To be an effective actor, I think you really have to understand yourself. Mm. And I certainly found that at, at drama school, it was a place to make those discoveries and, and learn who you are. Mm. Was it the same for you? Were you able to sort of extend what you'd uh, experienced with your accident about yourself and, and then take it further? Yeah, I mean, I, I found acting school really intimidating. And I think a lot of young actors do. 
when I think about how I am now in terms of how comfortable I am in a space, regardless of what I might be doing in that space, how I'm just so comfortable and authentically myself. And if there's one thing, my strongest memory of drama school is I was a long way from being that person. I was un... Uh, I think I carried a lot of unworthiness or, you know, I'm not good enough. And to be around people who were so, I thought, so much more talented than me too. And nobody really knows if they were. I mean, obviously David's an incredible talent. But but for the most part, there were so many, people were so much more comfortable holding the space and interacting authentically than I, than I could ever be. So it took me a long time to find to find who I was in that space and to be able to communicate from a place of truth and a place of safety because I was always judging myself and criticising myself and I had a lot of that unworthiness going on. So that took quite a long time to work out. But, yeah, that's the beauty of this this, um, oh, this long road to being this mature actor now and I look back at that, that little girl, really, and I... I I wish I could have said, hey, I wish I could talk to that girl now and just, you know, tell her to breathe and be present and don't judge, don't criticise yourself, just give to the other, focus on the other, don't focus on you, all the things actors know now. But as a young actor, you don't know that. David Mamet views drama school as a period where the students just try to please the teachers. <laughs> you know, yes, and I yes. thought, there is something to that, isn't it? You're Definitely. Sort of, they're the ones assessing you. They're the ones that have imparted this knowledge. And yes. it's about making them happy. Yeah. But it's about, acting is about so much more, of course. Yeah. And I think you don't really, until you get out there and start to, to work, you learn a lot of it on the job, don't you? Yeah, you learn a lot on the job. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's about blocking all those external forces and building the truth of the character from within. You know, Stanislavski's circle of attention is a really great one because the truth of the character and the, what the character understands is, is within the, 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 you know, the internal world. There's nothing to do with these external forces that are present for the actor. But that's the greatest challenge is that you're not pleasing the tutor and you're not, here, you're not um, cognizant of the audience unless you break the wall. You know, you've got to build the truth. But you've got to... That's the the relationship that you have with yourself has to be so strong for you to feel you can be you can really own the space as the actor and fulfill the truth for the character but you can't get there without going through that difficult mm. tough terrain mm. oh it's a it's a tricky one but it's fun isn't it ah uh, it's so fun <laughs> oh my god nothing funner what was your first professional gig um it was oh i did i did a cabaret as my first gig out of drama school um that was in a cafe so my first paid gig um it was probably i can't really remember to be honest with you it was probably something at the griffin i worked at the griffin in the early days um i worked at bay street theater where was bay street theater? so that was in bay street glebe Right, and obviously oh, no longer I think exists, does it? Doesn't exist no, anymore. No. But there was a company, was it? Uh, that was a theatre. Theatre space, right? But actually, I did a play there that I, uh, that I produced, which was East. So that was probably the first professional. Gig. The Burkoff. Yes, the Burkoff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I pr- produced that um, injuries and all. So that was that was probably the first one. Yeah. So in my early career, I did a lot of um, co-ops and indie theatre, independent theatre, because Nepean didn't have access to agents. I had to find my own agent, um, you know, and then I think I had to put a reel together so I didn't have a showcase is what I'm trying to say. Um, but then gradually I just kept doing independent theatre and then um, found my way into mainstream theatre and then ca- some cabaret because I sing and then some festival shows. So, you know, of course I always wanted to do Shakespeare and contem- great contemporary plays, but I've done quite a lot of Shakespeare, worked for Bell and worked for the festivals and mainstream companies and done amazing plays. Um, But always loved, you know, Australian-made plays, Australian writers. The work I've done at the Griffin has been some incredible writers, you know, and I love Australian work. So I feel pretty fortunate to have worked under that whole umbrella of theatre, you know, what we... 
uh, uh, international artists and Australian artists and and classical and contemporary. You know, it's a very big, broad slate, really. So I'm very fortunate. And it demonstrates a considerable range also mm. that's important for an actor, which you obviously have. Mm. <laughs> Thank you, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> now, accident number two um, mm. happened when you departed Perth. What were mm. you doing in Perth? Was, were you over there for a gig? Or? No, I was no. there for a funeral right. of a guy, my boyfriend's um, best friend and uncle, who'd, who was, um, who died on a motorcycle crash, and he was only 21. So he was very close to my boyfriend, who was devastated. And I had an audition. So I'd left drama school and I had an audition for Baz Luhrmann's um, Strictly Boring play. My first agent, right? No, so my agent had got me this audition, and I was super excited. Nobody knew Baz Luhrmann, nobody knew Strictly Ballroom, but the um, NIDA company, wasn't it? Yes, and I I had an audition. At least I thought I had an audition. I was very excited about it, and then my boyfriend asked me to go to Perth to go to a funeral, to go to Glenn's funeral, which I did, and it was we were. So we went to the wake that night and then four of us got into a car the following day to travel back to Sydney. Two of them were Glenn's brothers and David and William and um, we, we were about seven hours out of Perth when my boyfriend fell asleep at the wheel and the car went onto the, rolled onto the gravel and I was pushed up against the window because so, I was in the back. So as the car rolled, I lost a lot of... Uh, the window smashed and I was degloved, so I lost a lot. I lost massive amounts of skin and tissue from all over my body. Is that what degloved is? Degloved, yeah. Right, okay. That's what it I is. Heard that, that term. It, it's they they don't say skinned, right? Because skin is skin, but when they say degloved, I know it's pretty gross, but it, it means that you've lost thick tissue, so you're down to the bone. Dare I ask, were you wearing a seatbelt? I was, yeah. Right, okay. Yeah, I was, but. I don't know how I was ejected from the car because I was knocked unconscious. Um, but I was pushed up against the window as the car rolled. So I wasn't... Sta- I wasn't um, it didn't hold me in place in the, in the back seat. And, of course, I was, I was unconscious, so I don't know how, how I got out or I don't know anything about it other than I woke up knowing I'd lost my hand. I could see it was completely gone. And um, so I didn't you- know about all the other injuries, but I knew that... Simon was going crazy saying that David was, you know, they were performing CPR on David at the time. So that was the main focus. I made my way towards where Simon was and knocked out again. And Anyway, eventually a truck driver picked us up and took us to this little country hospital. So in the middle of nowhere? Yeah, we're in the middle of nowhere. It's near, anywhere near Kalgoorlie? Well, I'm not sure. It was near a place called Southern Cross, which is right. this tiny, tiny town, but it has a hospital. Right. A small country but hospital. Wouldn't be a big hospital and West able time. to deal with... No, no, we yeah. just got bandages and painkillers right. and then the flying doctor picked up the other two blokes and picked up Simon and I from this little hospital that the truck driver had taken us to and flew us to Royal Perth, where I stayed for quite a long time. And my injuries were... I lost my back and my hand, my left hand, which they... The flying doctor told me it would be amputated. But in fact, when I woke up, they'd replaced the skin and tissue from my hip. They'd taken the tendons from my left foot. Over a very long period of time, my skin graft would go to my head. I would have rib cartilage to rebuild an ear. Um, And uh, I had skin graft on this hand, my right hand. Um, and a lot of skin grafts to my back because my all, my whole back was was gone. So it was just like one long wound. So yeah, I had a lot of anyway. I I clocked up thirty operations about three or four years ago. I had my last one, <laughs> unbelievably, and that's because of the aging process, actually. Oh really? Because yeah, because the my skin. No, because doesn't... my tear duct blocked. Right. As things moved internally in my face, it blocked my tear duct. And when you think you've got a blocked tear duct, you think you're not, you you don't weep. the The opposite's true. It you weep all, all the time. time. Right, right. So I then had to have a silicon tear duct made, while that while the real one bonded inside there. Then they took that out, and I had 
extra support from the roof of my mouth as a as a pillow here under the ice in the eye socket and that was really good surgery yep yeah that really supported my eye in the way i needed it to and my tear duct's fine now so after that accident are you why me are you how can this happen again i mean yeah i mean they're pretty but also somebody's looking upon you whoever that is and Mm. giving you another chance that's right survival yeah i mean a lot of people over the over the years have said how unlucky i am and i find that an interesting perspective because i've i've always felt incredibly fortunate well that's the gratitude again isn't it yes i'm fortunate i survived but also in also because in light of what happened to david yeah i mean he he lost his life so my my um remind me where, where was he sitting he was sitting in the front seat front seat right seat belt on car smashed on crushed his head so brain dead oh. so not a scratch on his body not a scratch my mother told me not that i knew but um my feelings about my second accident are always in relation to david and because of course in relation to David, I, I pretty much had a scratch. And I had a hell of a lot more than a scratch, but I never felt that it was more than a scratch because um, I really did live to tell the tale and it could have been so much worse. I've always been grateful I'm not in a chair. I've always been grateful that I'm here. Always been grateful for the fact that I've got, gone on to live a normal life. And so many people around me haven't weren't able to, yeah. you know, psychologically. It was very difficult for my boyfriend at the time, so hard. And, of course, he felt very guilty because those that family lost two boys in the one week mm. because David was Glenn's brother. Mm. So I was surrounded by a lot of grief and it gave me a perspective of absolute good fortune. I was so lucky and they, they that family loved me so much. So I was very, very grateful to be to know them. So, yeah, it's, yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Do you dream about those accidents? Do you have nightmares or even... No, I tell you what's difficult. Sometimes I don't like being driven. I like driving. Right, you're in control. Mm, but because both, both, both times a passenger. I'm not a good passenger. I, I, my kids tell me, you know, Mama, because I'll go, like I have these little anxious responses. I'm trying to, I'm trying to lose it and just breathe and be calm. So but your I'm, children are driving for you now? My children drive, right. yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. But I, I prefer to drive. I'm a, I'm a, I love driving. Yeah. I've never had a fear of driving, funnily enough. I'm never gone, oh, I can't drive because of my accidents. Because I wasn't driving either time. So I don't have a hang-up at all about driving. I love it. But, um, yeah, I, pr- I prefer to be in control. Do you think you're, you have become a better actor because of the accidents? I know that sounds a silly question, but, I mean, has it allowed you to access parts of your experience that you've been able to use in your work? I think absolutely yes. Right. Yes, it has. I, I access emotion um, pretty quickly, and I think it's because, uh, like, grief and the grief, grief and tragedy doesn't sit below, just beneath the surface. I wouldn't say that, because I see myself as being kind of, you know, as I said, kind of a buoyant. I'm a happy girl. I'm I'm not a sad, sad sack victim kind of person, but. I, I do have access to these deep, raw emotions. And I love it when people ask me to bring it to... I've used it a lot in theatre. Oh, my God, in Othello. Right, of course. Yeah. And I really had a massive well to draw on there. But I, there's nothing I love more than to bring that into film and television. I just love the challenge of it. And to have to get it in such a short amount of time and to nail the right quality of the emotion and to get the right quantity i love all that that's a great challenge for me yeah yeah i've I've, i have got a rich resource there i mean you've got a psychological fitness i would imagine that that enables which is important for an actor also Hmm. i think so yeah you've got a you've got to be able to handle a lot as an actor you've got to handle a lot when you're doing the job because a lot's demanded of you physically and emotionally, psychologically. But you also have to handle it when you're not on the job, which is the rejection and the times when work's not around and how do you make a living when that doesn't happen and then when you do go for something and you get knocked back and you've already married it in your mind. and There's a lot of different things to negotiate as an actor. 
And that's certainly come to the fore, I think, in the last year. Um, the, the mental health of people in the arts industries and how they can be hugely affected by all of those things mm. that you just mentioned there in, mm. in that list. Yeah. Um, which the general public, the audiences, the politicians, mm. don't understand of how difficult a job it can be. No, they don't understand. And that was very apparent when the funding, the actors fell through the cracks in terms of um, the job keeper, job seeker funding. Um, and, uh, you know, actors really had to rally to um, to try to be seen and become visible and, and you know, raise the awareness of, of just how easy it is for actors to fall through the cracks which you know I mean this is a thing like people who go to politicians for example would go to see a play and they'd go and be seen to be at the opera because that's good for their role or position or profile but they don't think that these people are the working actors who need their support they don't appear out of nowhere they're you know they're, they're people who work who need to make a living and I think that it's so easy to forget that we're part of this society that people are dependent on for entertainment. Yeah. I mean, how did a lot of people survive lockdown? The hell? It was through reading, it was through viewing, it was That's through right. listening. Netflix, hello. Yeah. Like, actors need to work. Yeah. Actors need support when they're not working. So hopefully there was some progress made there. Well, uh, Radical Rock and Roll Resilience is your book. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to share... A testimonial that I read that from a, a lady called Kate Cordukes. Yes. Annie is amazing, courageous, fun-spirited and quite frankly one of the special ones. But I did not know how eloquently she could translate her phenomenal creative and complex life into such a beautiful, easily digestible, funny and congruent piece of what it means to lean in and be truly human. Oh, it's beautiful, isn't it? It is beautiful. I agree wholeheartedly. <laughs> Thank you, Peter. I appreciate that. How do... <laughs> How do people, how do listeners access the book? You've got a website, haven't you? I've got a website, yeah. Um, if you go to anniefinster.com, you can buy the book there. Yeah. There's also a Radical Rock and Roll Resilience website. You can also buy the book there, but I have tied that particular landing page for the book into my own website. And that website houses all the jobs I do. So it's acting and voiceover, but it's also corporate speaking. I do um, keynote speaking and corporate facilitation. So everything's there, there now under the one roof, so to speak. Well, if there's anyone who is uh, a master of resilience, <laughs> it's certainly you, as, as we can uh, test to the story that you've told today. I'm so delighted that it has a happy ending. Yeah, <laughs> it has a happy ending. <laughs> I'm here with you talking and having a great time. Yeah. And I'm lucky, Peter. I have a really great life. It's full of love and joy. All right. Yeah. Thanks, Annie. I thank you so much for having me. It's been a real joy. And what an extraordinary lesson in resilience is the story of Annie, shared so candidly by her today. Annie's book is indeed a terrific read and worth exploring if you'd like to know more. Check out her website at www.anniefinsterer.com. Thanks, Annie, for joining Stages in this episode. I'm Peter Ayers, take care and I look forward to your company next time.